Okay, so we've completed part three of the Brick Moon last week. And basically what happened is two separate scientists discover independently this new asteroid in the sky, one in Poland, I believe, and the other in, uh, in, in Russia. Uh, one names it Phoebe, the other Io. So the author kind of refers to it as Phoebe Io sometimes from, from then on. Using their published data of its orbit, they kind of guess 77 uh, locations of where they might be able to find it in the sky. Actually, I think it was like 66 or something. It, it, I swear that the author made a mistake because at one point he says a 60 number and then another point a 77 number. I looked back and I, I, I did not make a mistake. I read it correct. <laughs> so anyway, uh, anyway, they they keep looking, but they don't find it. But then eventually they do. And uh, as it turns out, when they look at it through a telescope, they find that there's little black spots on it and they find out that these are actually people. Orkut and Brannon and their families, 37 people in all, uh, are living on this brick moon. They notice they're jumping up and down and they uh, he notices right away that or realizes right away that this is Morse code. Basically, they ask him to show that he understands what they're doing and thus begins a whole bunch of communication between them in Morse code. They're using um, black cloth on a snowy field uh, on Earth to deliver Morse code messages to them, to the people on the brick moon, and the brick moon people jump up and down, short jumps and long jumps to communicate back to Earth. And basically they are living on a tropical world with uh, hemlocks, I think they mentioned, and all sorts of animals. <laughs> uh, all that, that he says all started from algae. That's when he says, tell tell them Darwin was correct, correct I guess, because it... Um, algae evolved into these animals and there you have it uh nobody died <laughs> in fact two people had babies and um they are they've been living great for a whole year on this asteroid now one notable part about this part was his mention of mr Locke's great moon hoax i have actually read this moon hoax i don't know where i heard about it but you can go online and look up the Great Moon Hoax and read the full text. I think it was published in a newspaper over a period of uh, weeks or something. Basically, this Mr. Locke guy, this author, published a hoax that he went, I think it was, it's been a while, but I think he went down to the tip of uh, Africa, southern tip of Africa, and with a giant telescope, uh, some scientist was able to actually see people on the moon. If I'm not mistaken, these people uh, had wings and flew around on the moon. You know, it actually might make a good uh, series for this podcast. It might be something we do down the road. But uh, that is a good read. Another thing I thought was really cool was his mention of the North Pole and the South Pole. I'll read the exact line. Your North Pole is an open ocean. It was black, which we think means water, from August 1st to September 29th. Your South Pole is an island bigger than New Holland. Your Antarctic continent is a great cluster of islands. So the North and South Pole, both of them were first reached in the 1900s, long after the story was written. Uh, I, you know, I think in the 1800s, they may have like approached 
the continent of Antarctica. I don't know. I didn't look it up. But I know that they, that the actual poles were both reached much later. So I think there's still a lot of exploring left to do. Uh, and so this is kind of his idea of what might be up there. Yeah, he was right about the North Pole, although I don't think it the ice shelf ever melts completely so that it would be black, right? I think it, <laughs> it would always be white. So that's interesting. Um, and the South Pole, he imagines, are a bunch of big islands, which they are not. Speaking of history, if you like history podcasts, you know, this has some history in it, but mostly it's just fiction. Uh, I found an awesome podcast called The Explorers Podcast. It is by Matt Breen, and I completely binged all his episodes when I first uh, stumbled upon it. I think I just searched history podcast or something. And he basically just picks an explorer and does a does a podcast. Sometimes there'll be one podcast. Sometimes it'll be a whole series. I think the Lewis and Clark podcast was a series of seven. Anyway, uh, really good podcast. I highly recommend it if you want a more historical podcast to listen to. One other thing to note uh, in this episode is that we learn that the brick moon landed in its orbit, not landed, but uh, settled in its orbit 5,000 miles from the surface of Earth. I believe the intended target was 4,000. Uh, let me just look real quick. Yes, uh, in the first part, they calculated that it should be 4,000 miles away. So it was off by a bit. However, uh, looking through it through a telescope, they mentioned that it was it looked as big as the largest moon of Jupiter. So that would be Ganymede, if I'm not mistaken. And I happened to take my telescope out uh, the other day. Jupiter was at opposition, which means it was as big as it's going to get this year. So I took it out, and I've done this many times before, but it is breathtaking every time I do it. You could see bands. You could see the four uh, largest moons, the Galilean moons. And uh, you can... With my telescope, you can definitely see the disk of Jupiter. It doesn't look like a point of light, but the moons definitely just look like a point of light, some brighter than others. However, they're using a much bigger, I believe it was a, um, they're using a 15-inch equatorial telescope at this point, so considerably bigger than my 10-inch Dobsonian, so they probably have a higher power on that. You know what? Actually, I'm wondering, yeah, I I don't know. They must have a really high power on this thing to be able to make out a disk from the moon of Jupiter. The size of the lens uh, in this case is not really going to matter because the the moons, Jupiter and the moons, they're very bright. You don't need a lot of light gathering ability. Uh, a big lens on a telescope will help you gather more light so you can see fainter objects. But a higher power just requires a different eyepiece. Those are fairly easy to come by. Uh, granted, you know, um, not all are equal. You can pay a lot more to get a, a better one, which should give you a sharper image. So I don't know whether or not this is fiction, if you really would be able to, from the Earth, consider you're going through the atmosphere and everything, be able to see the moon as well as they're describing. 
Anyway, uh, they're able to see people jumping up and down. You know what? There's no way. There is no way. This this is definitely fiction. You're not going to be able to see people jumping up and down. <laughs> this is, it's ridiculous, but kind of cool. <laughs> anyway, um, I think I'll leave it there and we will hear the fourth and final part of The Brick Moon. Four, independence. I own to a certain mortification in confessing that after this interregnum, forced upon us by so long a period of non-intercourse, we never resumed precisely the same constancy of communication as that which I have tried to describe at the beginning. The apology for this benumbment, if I may so call it, will suggest itself to the thoughtful reader. It is indeed astonishing to think that we so readily accept a position when we once understand it. You buy a new house. You are a fool enough to take out a staircase that you may put in a bathing room. This will be done in a fortnight, everybody tells you, and then everybody begins. Plumbers, masons, carpenters, plasterers, skimmers, bell hangers, speaking tube men, men who make furnace pipe, paper hangers, men who scrape off the old paper, and other men who take off the old paint with alkali, gas men, city watermen, and painters begin. To them are joined a considerable number of furnace men's assistants, stovepipes men's assistants, masons' assistants, and hoedmen who assist the assistants of the masons, the furnace men, and the pipe men. For a day or two, these all take possession of the house and reduce it to chaos. In the language of scripture, they enter in and dwell there. Compare, for details, Matthew twelve forty-five. Then you revisit it at the end of the fortnight and find it in chaos, with the woman who you employed to wash the attics, the only person on the scene. You ask her where the paper hanger is. And she says he can do nothing because the plaster is not dry. You ask why the plaster is not dry, and are told it is because the furnace man has not come. You send for him, and he says he did come, but the stovepipe man was away. You send for him, and he says he lost a day in coming, but that the mason had not cut the right hole in the chimney. You go and find the mason and he says all are fools, and that there is nothing in the house that need take two days to finish. Then you curse, not the day in which you were born, but the day in which bathrooms were invented. You say, truly, that your father and mother, from whom you inherit every moral and physical faculty you prize, never had a bathroom till they were past sixty, yet they thrived, and their children. You sneak through back streets, fearful lest your friends shall ask you when your house will be finished. You are sunk in wretchedness, unable to even read your proofs accurately, far less able to attend the primary meetings of the party with which you vote, or to discharge any of the duties of a good citizen. Life is wholly embittered to you. Yet, six weeks after, you sit before a soft coal fire in your new house with the feeling that you have always lived there. You are not even grateful that you are there. You have forgotten the plumber's name, and if you met in the street that nice carpenter that drove things through, you would just nod to him and would not think of kissing him or embracing him. Thus completely have you accepted the situation.
Let me confess that the same experience is that with which, at this writing, I regard the brick moon. It is there in ether. I cannot keep it. I cannot get it down. I cannot well go to it, though possibly that might be done, as you will see. They are all very happy there. Much happier, as far as I can see, than if they lived in sixth floors in Paris, in lodgings in London, or even in tenement houses in Phoenix Place, Boston. There are disadvantages attached to their position, but there are also advantages. And what most of all tends to our accepting the situation is that there is nothing that we can do about it, as Q says, but to keep up our correspondence with them and to express our sympathies. For them, their responsibilities are reduced in somewhat the same proportion as the gravitation which binds them down, I almost said to earth, which binds them down to brick, I mean. This decrease of responsibility must make them as light-hearted as the loss of gravitation makes them light-bodied. On which point I ask for a moment's attention. And as these sheets leave my hand, an illustration turns up which well serves me. It is the 23rd of October. Yesterday morning, all wakeful women in New England were sure there was someone under the bed. This is a certain sign of an earthquake. And when we read the evening newspapers, we were made sure that there had been an earthquake. What blessings the newspapers are, and how much information they give us. Well, they said it was not very severe here, but perhaps it was more severe elsewhere. Hopes really arising in the editorial mind that in some Caracas or Lisbon, all churches and all the cathedrals might have fallen. I did not hope for that, but I did have just the faintest feeling that if, 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 it should prove that the world had blown up into six or eight pieces and they had gone off into separate orbits, life would be vastly easier for all of us on whichever bit we happen to be. That thing has happened, they say, once. Whenever the big planet between Mars and Jupiter blew up into 100 or two or more asteroids, the people on each one only knew there had been an earthquake when and after they read their morning journals. And then, all that they knew at first was that telegraphic communication had ceased beyond, say, 200 miles. Gradually, people and despatches came in who said that they had parted company with some of the other islands and continents. But, as I say, on each piece, the people not only weighed much less, but were much lighter-hearted, had less responsibility. Now, will you imagine the enthusiasm here, at Miss Hale's school, when it should be announced that geography, in future, would be confined to the study of the region east of the Mississippi and west of the Atlantic, the earth having parted at the seams so named? No more study of Italian, German, French, or Sclavonic? The people speaking those languages being now in different orbits or other worlds. Imagine also the superior ease of the office work of the ABCFM and kindred societies, the duties of instruction and civilizing, of evangelizing in general, being reduced within so much narrower bounds. For you and me also, who cannot decide what Mr. Gladstone ought to do with the land tenure in Ireland, and who distress ourselves so much about it in conversation, what a satisfaction to know 
that Great Britain is flung off with one rate of movement, Ireland with another, and the Isle of Man with another, into space, with no more chance of meeting again than there is that you shall have the same hand at whist tonight that you had last night. Even Victoria would sleep easier, and I am sure Mr. Gladstone would. Thus, I say, were Orchid's and Brannon's responsibilities so diminished that after the first, I began to see that their contracted position had its decided compensating ameliorations. In these views, I need not say the women of our little circle never shared. After we got the new telegraph arrangement in good running order, I observed that Polly and Annie Halliburton had many private conversations, and the secret came out one morning, when, rising early in the cabins, we men found they had deserted us, and then, going in search of them, found them running the signal boards in and out as rapidly as they could to tell Mrs. Brannan and the bride, Alice Orcutt, that flounces were worn an inch and a half deeper, and that people trimmed now with harmonizing colors and not with contrasts. I did not say that I believed they wore fig leaves in BM, but that was my private impression. After all, it was hard to laugh at the girls, as these ladies will be called, should they live to be as old as Helen when she charmed the Trojan Senate. That was 93, if Hain be right in his calculations. It was hard to laugh at them because this was simple benevolence, and the same benevolence led to a much more practical suggestion when Polly came to me and told me she had been putting up some baby things for little Io and Phoebe, and some playthings for the older children, and she thought we might send them up a bundle. Of course we could. There were the flies still moving. Or we might go ourselves. And here the reader must indulge me in a long parenthesis. I beg him to bear me witness that I never made one before. This parenthesis is on the tense that I am obliged to use in sending to the press these minutes. The reader observes that the last transactions mentioned happened in April and May, 1871. Those to be narrated are the sequence of those already told. Speaking of them in 1870 with the coarse tenses of the English language is very difficult. One needs, for accuracy, a sure future, a second future, Apollo post-future, and Apollo anti-future, none of which does this language have. Failing this, one would be glad of an aorist, tense without time, if the grammarians will not swoon at hearing such a language. But the English tongue hath not that either. Doth the learned reader remember that the Hebrew, language of history and prophecy, hath only a past and a future tense, but hath no present? Yet that language succeeded tolerably in expressing the present griefs or joys of David and of Solomon. Bear with me then, O critic. If even in 1870 I use the so-called past tenses in narrating what remaineth of this history— up to the summer of 1872. End of parenthesis. On careful consideration, however, no one volunteers to go. To go, if you observe, would require that man envelop himself thickly in asbestos, or some similar non-conducting substance, leap boldly on the rapid flies, and so be shot through the Earth's atmosphere in two seconds and a fraction, carrying with him all the time in a non-conducting receiver, the condensed air he needed, 
and landing quietly on BM by a pre-calculated orbit. At the bottom of our hearts, I think we were all afraid. Some of us confessed to fear. Others said, and said truly, that the population of the moon was already dense and that it did not seem reasonable or worthwhile on any account to make it denser. Nor has any movement been renewed for going. But the plan of the bundle of things seemed more feasible as the things would not require oxygen. The only precaution seemed to be that which was necessary for protecting the parcel against combustion as it shot through the Earth's atmosphere. We had not asbestos enough. It was first proposed to pack them all in one of Professor Horsford's safes. But when I telegraphed this plan to Orkut, he demurred. Their atmosphere was but shallow and with a little too much force, the corner of the safe might knock a very bad hole in the surface of his world. He said if we would send up first a collection of things of no great weight, but of considerable bulk, he would risk that. But he would rather have no compact metals. I satisfied myself, therefore, with a plan which I still think good. Making the parcel up in heavy old woolen carpets and cording it with worsted cords, we would case it in a carpet bag larger than itself and fill in the interstice with dry sand as our best non-conductor. Cording this tightly again, we would renew the same casing with more sand and so continually offer surfaces of sand and woolen till we had five separate layers between the parcel and the air. Our calculation was that a perceptible time would be necessary for the burning and disintegrating of each sandbag. If each one, on the average, would stand two-fifths of a second, the inner parcel would get through the Earth's atmosphere unconsumed. If, on the other hand, they lasted a little longer, the bag, as it fell on BM, would not be unduly heavy. Of course, we could take their night for the experiment, so that we might be sure that they would all be in bed and out of the way. We had very funny and very merry times in selecting things important enough and at the same time bulky and light enough to be safe. Alice and Bertha at once insisted that there must be room for the children's playthings. They wanted to send the most approved of the old ones and to add some new presents. There was a woolly sheep in particular and a watering pot that Rose had given Fanny, about which there was some sentiment. Boxes of dominoes, packs of cards, magnetic fishes, bows and arrows, checkerboards and croquet sets. Polly and Annie were more considerate. Down to Coleman and Company, they sent an order for pins, needles, hooks and eyes, buttons, tapes, and I know not what essentials. India rubber shoes for the children, Mrs. Halliburton insisted on sending. Halliburton himself had bought open-eye, shut-eye dolls, though I felt that wax had been, since Icarus's day, the worst article in such an adventure. For the babies, he had India rubber rings. He had tin cows and carved wooden lions for the bigger children, drawing tools for those older yet, and a box of croquet tools for the ladies. For my part, I piled in literature. A set of my own works, the legislative reports of the state of Maine, Jean Ingelow, as I said or imitated, and both volumes of The Earthly Paradise. All these were packed in sand, bagged and corded, bagged, sanded, and corded again, yet again and again, five times. 
Then the whole awaited Orcutt's orders and our calculations. At last the moment came. We had, at Orcutt's order, reduced the revolutions of the flies to 7,230, which was, as nearly as we knew, the speed on that fatal night. We had soaked the bag for near 12 hours, and, at the moment agreed upon, rolled it on the flies and saw it shot into the air. It was so small that it went out of sight too soon for us to see it take fire. Of course, we watched eagerly for signal time. They were all in bed on BM when we let fly. But the despatch was a sad disappointment. 107. Nothing has come through but two croquet balls and a china horse. But we shall send the boys hunting in the bushes, and we may find more. 108. Two harpers and an Atlantic badly singed. But we can read all but the parts which were most dry. 109. We see many small articles revolving around us, which may perhaps fall in. They never did fall in, however. The truth was that all the bags had burned through. The sand, I suppose, went to its place, wherever that was. And all the other things in our little bundle became little asteroids or aerolites in orbits of their own, except a well-disposed score or two, which preserved far enough to get within the attraction of the brick moon and to take to revolving there, not having hit quite square as the croquet balls did. They had five volumes of the Congressional Globe whirling round like bats within 500 feet of their heads. Another body, which I am afraid was the Ingram Papers, flew a little higher, not quite so heavy. Then there was an absurd procession of the woolly sheep, a china cow, a pair of India rubbers, a lobster Halliburton had chosen to send, a wooden lion, the wax doll, a salter's balance, the New York Observer, the bow and arrows, a Nuremberg nanny goat, Rose's watering pot, and the magnetic fishes, which gravely circled round and round them slowly and made the petty zodiac of their petty world. We have never sent another parcel since, but we probably shall at Christmas, gauging the flies perhaps to one revolution more. The truth is, that although we have never stated to each other in words our difference of opinion or feeling, there is a difference of habit of thought in our little circle as to the position which the BM holds. Somewhat similar is the difference of habit of thought in which different statesmen of England regard their colonies. Is BM a part of our world, or is it not? Should its inhabitants be encouraged to maintain their connections with us? Or is it better for them to accept the situation and gradually wean themselves from us and our affairs? It would be idle to determine this question in the abstract. It is perhaps idle to decide any question of casuistry in the abstract. But in practice, there are constantly arising questions which really require some decision of this abstract problem for their solution. For instance, when that terrible breach occurred in the Sandemanian church, which parted it into the old school and new school parties, Halliburton thought it very important that Brannan and Orkut and the church in BM, under Brannan's ministry, should give in their adhesion to our side. Their church would count one more in our registry, and the weight of its influence would not be lost. He therefore spent 
eight or nine days in telegraphing from the early proofs a copy of the address of the Chautauqua Synod to Brannan and asked Brannan if he were not willing to have his name signed to it when it was printed. And the only thing which Halliburton takes sorely in the whole experience of the Brick Moon from the beginning is that neither Orkut nor Brannan has ever sent one word of acknowledgement of the despatch. Once, when Halliburton was very low-spirited, I heard him even say that he believed they had never read a word of it, and that he thought he and Rob Shea had had their labor for their pains in running the signals out and in. Then he felt quite sure that they would have to establish a civil government there. So he made up an excellent collection of books, Delome on the British Constitution, Montesquieu on Laws, Story, Kent, John Adams, and all the authorities here, with ten copies of his own address delivered before the Young Men's Mutual Improvement Society of Podunk on the abnormal truths of social order. He telegraphed to know what night he should send them, and Orkut replied, 129. Go to thunder with your old law books. We have not had a primary meeting nor a justice court since we have been here, and D.V. we never will have. Halliburton says this is as bad as the state of things in Kansas, when because Frank Pierce would not give them any judges or laws to their mind, they lived a year or so without any. Orca added in his next despatch, 130. Have not you any new novels? Send up Scribe and the Arabian Nights and Robinson Crusoe and the Three Guardsmen and Mrs. Whitney's books. We have Thackeray and Miss Austen. When he read this, Halliburton felt as if they were not only light-footed, but light-headed, and he consulted me quite seriously as to the telegraphing to them Pycroft's course of reading. I coaxed him out of that, and he satisfied himself with a serious expostulation with George as to the way in which their young folks would grow up. George replied by telegraphing Brannon's last sermon, 1 Thessalonians 4-2. The sermon had four heads, must have occupied an hour and a half in delivery, and took five nights to telegraph. I had another engagement, so that Halliburton had to sit it all out with his eye to Shuabel, and he has never entered on that line of discussion again. It was as well, perhaps, that he got enough of it. The women have never had any misunderstandings. When we had received two or three hundred despatches from B.M., Annie Halliburton came to me and said, in that pretty way of hers, that she thought they had a right to their turn again. She said this lore about Albert Nyanza and the North Pole was all very well, but for her part, she wanted to know how they lived, what they did, and what they talked about, whether they took summer journeys, and how and what was the form of society where 37 people lived in such close quarters. This about the form of society was merely wool pulled over my eyes. So she said she thought her husband and I had better go off to the biennial convention at Asampink, as she knew we wanted to, and she and Bridget and Polly and Cordelia would watch for the signals and would make the replies. She thought they would get on better if we were out of the way. So we went to the convention, as she called it, which was really not properly a convention, 
but the 45th Biennial General Synod, and we left the girls to their own sweet way. Shall I confess that they kept no record of their own signals, and did not remember very accurately what they were? I was not going to keep a string of says I's and says he's, said Polly boldly. It shall not be written on my tomb that I have left more annals for people to file or study or bind or dust or catalog. But they told us that they had begun by asking the bricks if they remembered what Maria Teresa said to her ladies-in-waiting. Quicker than any signal had ever been answered, George Orcutt's party replied from the moon, We hear and we obey. Then the womenkind had it all to themselves. The brick women explained at once to our girls that they had sent their men round to the other side to cut ice, and that they were manning the telescope and running the signals for themselves, and that they could have a nice talk without any bother about law books or the magnetic pole. As I say, I do not know what questions Polly and Annie put, but to give them their due, they had put on paper a coherent record of the results arrived at in the answers, though What were the numbers of the despatches, or in what order they came, I do not know. For the session of the Synod kept us at Assampink for two or three weeks. Maria Teresa's husband, Francis, Duke of Tuscany, was hanging about loose one day, and the Empress, who had got a little tired, said to the maids of honor, Girls, whenever you marry, take care and choose a husband who has something to do outside of the house. Mrs. Brannan was the spokesman. We tried a good many experiments about day and night. It was very funny at first not to know when it would be light and when dark. For really the names of day and night do not express a great deal for us. Of course, the pendulum clocks all went wrong till the men got them overhauled. And I think watches and clocks both will soon go out of fashion but we have settled down on much the old hours, getting up without reference to daylight, by our great gong at your eight o'clock. But when the eclipse season comes, we vary from that for signaling. We still make separate families, and Alice's is the seventh. We tried hotel life, and we liked it, for there has never been the first quarrel here. You can't quarrel here. Where you are never sick, never tired, and need not ever be hungry? But we were satisfied that it was nicer for the children and for all round to live separately and come together at parties, to church, at signal time, and so on. We had something to say then, something to teach, and something to learn. Since the carouses developed so nicely into flax, we have had one great comfort, which we had not lost before, in being able to make and use paper, We have had great fun, and we think the children have had great improvement in writing novels for the Union. The Union is the old Union for Christian work that we had had in Dear Old Number 9. We have two serial novels going on, one called Diana of Caratuk, and the other called Ups and Downs, the first by Levi Ross and the other by my Blanche. They are really very good and I wish we could send them to you, but they would not be worth despatching. We get up at eight, dress and fix up at home, a sniff of air, as people choose, breakfast, and then we meet for prayer outside. 
Where we meet depends on the temperature, for we can choose any temperature we want, from boiling water down, which is convenient. After prayers, an hour's talk, lounging, walking, and so on. No flirting, but a favorite time with the young folks. Then comes work. Three hours head work is the maximum in that line. Of women's work, as in all worlds, there are 24 in one of your days. But for my part, I like it. Farmers and carpenters have their own laws, as the light serves and the seasons. Dinner is seven hours after breakfast began, always an hour long, as breakfast was. Then every human being sleeps for an hour. Big gong again, and we ride, walk, swim, telegraph, or whatnot, as the case may be. We have no horses yet, but the Shanghais are coming up into very good dodos and ostriches, quite big enough for a trot for the children. Only two persons of a family take tea at home. The rest always go out to tea without invitation. At 8 p.m., big gong again, and we meet in Grace, which is the prettiest hall, church, concert room that you ever saw. We have singing, lectures, theater, dancing, talk, or what the mistress of the night determines, till the curfew sounds at 10, and then we all go home. Evening prayers are in the separate households, and everyone in bed by midnight. The only law on the statute book is that everyone shall sleep nine hours out of every 24. Only one thing interrupts this general order. Three taps on the gong means telegraph. And then, I tell you, we are all on hand. You cannot think how quickly the days and years go by. Of course, however, as I said, this could not be the last. We could not subdue our world and be spending all our time in telegraphing our dear BM. Could it be possible, perhaps it was possible, that they there had something else to think of and to do besides attending to our affairs? Certainly their indifference to Grant's fourth proclamation and to Mr. Fish's celebrated protocol in the Tahiti business looked that way. Could it be that the little witch of a Belle Brannan really cared more for their performance of Midsummer Night's Dream on her father's birthday than she cared for that pleasant little account I telegraphed up to all the children of the way we went to muster when we were boys together? Ah, well, I ought to not have supposed that all worlds were like this old world. Indeed, I often say this is the queerest world I ever knew. Perhaps theirs is not so queer and it is I who am the oddity. Of course, it could not last. We just arranged correspondence days when we would send to them, or they to us. I was meanwhile turned out from my place at Tamworth Observatory. Not but I did my work well, and Polly hers. The observer's room was a miracle of neatness. The children were kept in the basement. Visitors were received with great courtesy, and all the fees were sent to the treasurer. He got $3.11 one summer. That was the year General Grant came there. And that was the largest amount that they ever received from any source but begging. I was not unfaithful to my trust, nor was it for such fidelity that I was removed. No, but it was discovered that I was a Sandemanian, 
a glassite, as in derision, I was called. The annual meeting of the trustees came around. There was a large mechanics fair in Tamworth at the time, and an agricultural convention. There was no horse race at the convention, but there were two competitive examinations in which running horses competed with each other, and trotting horses competed with each other, and $5,000 was given to the best runner and the best trotter. These causes drew all the trustees together. The Reverend Cephas Philpotts presided. His doctrines with regard to free agency were considered much more sound than mine. He took the chair in that pretty observatory parlor, which Polly had made so bright with Smilax and Ivy. Of course, I took no chair. I waited, as a janitor should, at the door. Then a brief address. Dr. Philpotts trusted that the observatory might always be administered in the interests of science, of true science, of that science which rightly distinguishes between unlicensed liberty and true freedom, between the unrestrained volition and the freedom of the will. He became eloquent. He became noisy. He sat down. Then three other men spoke on similar subjects. Then the executive committee, which had appointed me, was dismissed with thanks. Then a new executive committee was chosen, with Dr. Philpotts at the head. The next day I was discharged, and the next week Philpotts' family moved into the observatory, and their second girl now takes care of the instruments. I returned to the cure of souls and to healing the hurt of my people. On observation days, somebody runs down to number nine, and by means of Shubel, communicates with BM. We love them, and they love us all the same. Nor do we grieve for them as we did. Coming home from Pigeon Cove in October with those nice Wadsworth people, we fell to talking as to the why and wherefore of the summer life we had led. How was it that it was so charming? And why were we a little loath to come back to more comfortable surroundings? I hate the school, said George Wadsworth. I hate the making calls, said his mother. I hate the office hour, said her poor husband. If there were only a dozen, I would not mind. But 1,700,000 in 60 minutes is too many. So that led to asking how many of us there had been at Pigeon Cove. The children counted up all the six families, the Halliburtons, the Wadsworths, the Pontefracts, the Midges, the Hayseys, and the Ingrams and the two good-natured girls, 37 in all, and the two babies born this summer. Really, said Mrs. Wadsworth, I have not spoken to a human being besides these since June. And what is more, Mrs. Ingram, I have not wanted to. We have really lived in a little world of our own. World of our own. Polly fairly jumped from her seat to Mrs. Wadsworth's wonder. So we had lived in a world of our own. Polly reads no newspaper since the Sandemanian was merged. She has a letter or two tumble in sometimes, but not many. And the truth was that she had been more secluded from General Grant and Mr. Gladstone and the Khedive and the rest of the important people than had Brannon or Ross or any of them. And it had been the happiest summer she had ever known. Can it be possible that all human sympathies can thrive and all human powers be exercised, and all human joys increase, 
If we live with all our might with the 30 or 40 people next to us, telegraphing kindly to all other people, to be sure? Can it be possible that our passion for large cities and large parties and large theaters and large churches develops no faith nor hope nor love which would not find ailment and exercise in a little world of our own? All right, guys, that is it. If you've made it this far, I applaud you. To be totally honest, I kind of thought the last uh, part was a little bit of a bore. There was some interesting things which I want to talk about, but uh, a lot of it was just theorizing and pontification. Uh, the one kind of story aspect to the to it was them sending up a bundle. Uh, but other than that, it's a lot of kind of daily life uh, on the asteroid, which is interesting. Uh, just you know, not my favorite episode. On the whole, I really, really liked this this story. Uh, I don't think that, you, you know, sometimes I'll read a story and I'm not thrilled with the ending or even maybe the whole last half or something. And that doesn't mean that, you know, granted, it leaves that that last impression is not great, but I can still remember the parts that I enjoyed at the beginning. And so overall, I'll still rate it highly. And I, I do think this story was awesome. I loved it, especially just, you know, given when it was written. I thought it was really interesting to consider all of that. I enjoy his talk about the asteroid belt in this episode, in this uh, part. He mentions that the asteroid belt has 102 or more asteroids in it which is interesting because i don't even know what the number is now but i think it's you know obviously it, it just depends on how small a grain of sand we want to count as an asteroid but i think there's probably unlimited asteroids out there uh, i did look it up by 1869 which is when this was published about 23 had been discovered i say 23 because really i just went to wikipedia and looked at the list of asteroids and there's they have a list of asteroids larger than a certain size and you can sort it and i just sorted it and counted and, and they have when they were discovered it's possible that there are some that were smaller than this certain size that were discovered then but i think about 23 is about right so i'm thinking he was probably saying well we've discovered 23 but there's scientists believe that there's probably about this many out there you know undiscovered still so he says there's 20 uh, 102 or more and he also mentions that apparently at this time, and I think until probably fairly recently, the main idea, main theory was that there was a world there, but it got broken up uh, by the gravitational pull of Jupiter. And um, just to kind of get the latest theory on this, it sounds more like what scientists think nowadays is that this actually happened very early on in the um, creation of the solar system that there were protoplanets at this orbit. But so basically planets before they were, you could actually call them planets. Maybe that means that they're still not, you know, congealed into a planet or something. But basically at that point, very early point, Jupiter, Jupiter's gravity broke it up and uh, thus the asteroid belt. Uh, something interesting to note is that the total mass of the asteroid belt is actually only 4% of our moon. 
or in another perspective, 22% the mass of Pluto, which is very small. So there's not a lot of stuff in the asteroid belt. Another <laughs> interesting thing he mentions, I had to reread it just to make sure uh, I was reading it correctly. He mentions dodos, the dodo, a, a bird from Madagascar. From what I read, basically they were discovered late 1500s and the last one to be seen was um, 1662. So after only, um, you know, 62 years or so of discovery by, I think, Europeans, they became extinct. And these were big birds, apparently, uh, over three feet tall. So not quite like ostriches, but uh, pretty big. And he says that they had dodos and ostriches and that the children could ride them around on the, on the moon. I find it strange that he would choose a dodo. I mean, obviously, he, he wanted a bird that was large enough to ride, you know, so he could say that the children were riding them. And I mean, he had the ostrich. He could have stopped there. But no, he mentions the dodo too, an extinct bird. Maybe he was, you know, he had already mentioned Darwin. So maybe he chose them, a dodo specifically, because it went extinct. And from this algae that they have on this moon, you know, that has already created trees and other animals. Uh, he wanted to show that like a dodo got recreated. <laughs> I don't know. It's actually kind of cool if you think about it. Uh, so there we have it. That's the brick moon, the first published story about a natural satellite, apparently. Pretty cool. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Uh, I really would like to hear what you guys think of the story on Twitter. Tweet me at wetjosh, W-E-T-J-O-S-H. Uh, even if it's just, I liked it, I would love to hear it, or I didn't like it. You know, to be honest, <laughs> I am a destroyer of stories. I actually don't like a lot of stories that I read, and I'm 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 pretty overcritical of of books and stories that I read. And if I don't like something, I'm going to say it. <laughs> I or maybe you won't hear me say it because it won't turn into a podcast. I don't know, but uh, I actually really liked this one, even though I think it kind of petered out toward the end. So let me know what you think. And I've already got another story picked out for next week, and it is going to be much shorter. I think it's going to be a one episode, but we'll see. See you then.